Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. The work of the Holy Spirit we saw last week was the uh, effective power in the conception of Jesus in the womb of Mary, the sanctified flesh prepared by the Holy Spirit that enabled a perfect harmony with the divine Son of God when Christ, as we learned, assumed that body of flesh. From the moment Christ humbled himself, emptied himself of the honor, glory, and majesty of heaven, took on this body of flesh on the earth, the Holy Spirit was ever-present. He was present as Christ developed in the womb, in the growth of Christ in wisdom and physical stature. When Jesus was baptized at the age of 30 in the Jordan, marking the beginning of his public ministry, he was there in the great battle with the tempter Satan in the wilderness, and the Spirit empowered Christ to perform the wondrous miracles of healing, healing of the sick, controlling the elements of nature, even the exorcism of demons. He was empowered to know the hearts of those he engaged in the temple and in the streets. The Spirit was there in Gethsemane when Christ was in intimate prayer with the Father before taking on the sin of the world. Now, although we do not know the exact role of the Spirit while Christ was on the cross, especially at the point when Jesus cried aloud in agony, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When Christ experienced a true forsakenness, bearing our sin, our judgment, resulting in the Father's weighty wrath being poured upon him, even at a time when Jesus could have called down legions of angels to rescue him from that horror of the ultimate injustice at the hands of unjust men, at any moment having the authority to destroy every filthy sinner and every atom of existence, Jesus endured, obeying the will of the Father. At the point of death, Christ's steadfastness to accomplish the work he had come to complete, he was unmoved. This God-man, as we learn, the theanthropic person who took on flesh to save those of the human race who would turn, repent, and trust the Savior, was then raised on the third day. Now, we looked at verses in Scripture last week that attributed the raising of Christ to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, if you remember that from last week. We know it was the Father's decreed will that it be so. It was the Son's perfect obedience to the will of the Father that it be so. And it was the effecting power of the Spirit that it be so. After the resurrection, Jesus continued to teach his disciples by the power of the Spirit. It says in Acts 1, 1 through 3, and this is the beginning of our lesson for today. Luke writes in Acts, The first account I composed Theophilus about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen 
To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. MacArthur writes of this verse, of this set of verses, that the Spirit was the source and power of Jesus' earthly ministry and of the apostles' service. Luke continues in verse 4, Gathering his apostles together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, You heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the what? Holy Spirit, not many days from now. The resurrection of Jesus is our triumphant victory, the victory of the redeemed, but it is not the end of the story. Christ gave a command to stay in Jerusalem for the purpose of some promised event that would take place. There's a hymn that I found by Charles Wesley, written, I think, in 1740s, called Jesus, We on the Word Depend. And he writes, I'll just read the first two stanzas. Jesus, we on the Word depend, spoken by thee, while present here, saying, The Father in my name shall send the Holy Ghost, the Comforter. That promise made to Adam's race, now, Lord, in us, even us, fulfill, and give the Spirit of thy grace to teach us all thy perfect will. So I'd like to bring to your consideration this morning this event that marked the beginning of a distinctive period of time, an epochal event, a new period of time in history, not just church history, that began in Jerusalem not long after the ascension of our Lord Jesus. This new period of redemptive history, this ground zero of the birth of the church and the spread of the gospel, was prophesied in the Old Testament and by Jesus, as we just read in the New. As distinct as the, perf as the coming of Christ in the flesh, this event long prophesied by Isaiah in 44.3. And I have these in your notes. For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Ezekiel 11.19 and 36.26. These are mirror verses, word for word. And I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them. And I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. He says again in 39.29, I will not hide my face from them any longer, for I will have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. And in Joel 2.28, it will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions. John Piper writes, this would be a pivotal turning point 
in the way the Holy Spirit operated in the world as men and women, old and young, slave and free, near and far, would be born of the Spirit, baptized in the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, in order that they may bear witness to the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. So as we endeavor this morning to understand this wondrous event this morning, when the Spirit of God was sent by the Father and the Son to begin to dwell within every believer, and this is the event known as Pentecost. So let us pray together. Our Lord, as we begin this study, maybe it's new for some people, maybe some are very familiar with this event, I pray, Lord, that we would have clarity of mind and also understanding so that uh, these things that we learn are not just head knowledge, but that they will add to our worship and also our understanding of who you are. And we thank you for your Holy Spirit, and may uh, we be humble before his teaching as we study your word, because as the hymn said, on your word we depend. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Pentecost was nothing new as it was. It was a Jewish celebration uh, in the Hebrew Shavuot, or the Feast of the Harvest, or the Feast of Weeks. That Hebrew word Shavuot means week. So it's the Feast of Weeks, or the Day of the First Fruits. Now, Pentecost is actually a Greek word, then, for 50th. So, penta, you would probably know, if you were in any second grade uh, math class, pentagons have how many sides? Five. Five. So, Pentecost was the 50th. So, this festival was celebrated exactly seven weeks after the second day of the Passover, or the 50th day after the Passover began. Now, this celebration of the 50th day for the Jewish people later in tradition, they added a remembrance. This was in, I think, 70 AD. They added to the celebration Moses receiving the law on Mount Sinai. So this 50th day after being delivered from Egypt. So the Passover memorialized the work of God in the Exodus, bringing them out of Egypt And the Shavuot, or Pentecost in the Greek, was the remembrance of Moses receiving of the law on Sinai, marking the birth of the nation in the wilderness, 50 days after leaving Egypt. I know that's several different things coming together there, but I say all that because that was the reason for the gathering together of all these Jewish peoples from so many different nations. We read in Acts 2, 5 through 11, and this is also in your notes, that many nations were gathered, and I believe there are 15 different nations represented there, and I put in parentheses all of the modern-day locations from where these people had arrived from. So the Christian view of Pentecost is not the Jewish 
celebration, it is the arrival of the Holy Spirit, who would continue the work that Jesus' ministry began. Now, Jesus told his disciples in John 14, 16, and 17, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Will be something that is to occur that had not yet happened. The phrase another helper implies that Christ was indeed the first helper. He is our advocate. Jesus says, you know him because he abides with you. Speaking to the disciples, he says, you know the Spirit. He is with you already. He was already in their presence because he was so intimately connected to Christ. They are one, as we know. They are one, the Trinity. Their will, each person's will, is shared They are in unity. So because the disciples were with Jesus, the disciples were also with the Holy Spirit. Jesus was telling his disciples that they were well acquainted with the Spirit, but that a future change would occur and that the Spirit would abide in them. So as we study in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God was active in the effect of clothing or covering certain people with the endowments that benefited the nation Israel, the judges, the kings, the artisans, the prophets. It was also the work of the Holy Spirit that effected a change in the sinful inclinations of the natural man, regeneration, resulting in believers, God-fearers of the Old Testament. This continuity of the Spirit's work from old to new is that of a difference of operation. He didn't begin in the New Testament, he continued in a new way. This event of Pentecost would usher in a new era of the Spirit's work, where all believers would be indwelt with the Spirit. Not only a select few that would be outwardly clothed or separately regenerated of heart, Abraham Kuyper, the 20th century theologian, excellent work called The Concise Works on the Holy Spirit, attempted to illustrate, and this was about a a two-and-a-half-page illustration, so I'm going to try to condense it here. He writes that the difference between the Old and the New Testament operations is the difference between a city of houses with individual cisterns of water, their water source wells individually, and a city that is supplied by a common reservoir with water mains. Okay, try to visualize this with me. So before each home was supplied individually as the mild showers of the Holy Spirit descended in drops of saving grace, but in such a manner that the heavenly rain supplied enough to quench the thirst of each heart separately. Now, lost my place here. Give me a second. Then there came the change. Christ became the reservoir, and the system, his work, accomplished all of the ends there, by which the Spirit flowed. 
Christ became the channel by which the Holy Spirit is poured out and which connects each of the members of the church in unity. The full stream of the Holy Spirit came rushing through the connecting channels into the heart of every believer. Formerly isolation, but now an organic union. Of all the members, I want us to consider ourselves here in this, connecting the channels into the heart of every believer. We are all under our one head, Jesus Christ, and Scripture tells us there would be a flow of rivers of living water. In John seven thirty-seven through 39, Jesus cried aloud in the temple. He says, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood out and cried out, saying, stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So at Pentecost, the waterworks were turned on. The living Spirit flowed directly into the hearts of the people, filling them to the point of overflowing. Where before the gift of the Holy Spirit was reserved for God's chosen nation and those who would assimilate themselves to that chosen nation, like Ruth or Rahab, now the Spirit of Christ would be given to all who call on the name of the Lord. So this gift of the Holy Spirit, the Bible calls the baptism of the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist baptized with water but he said there would be someone greater that would come that would baptize with the Holy Spirit. Has, is anyone here, I'm just curious, familiar or have an understanding of what it means to be baptized with the Holy Spirit? Have you heard the phrase? But maybe not have a full understanding of it. And I think being a product of the 20, 20th and 21st centuries, we're at a disadvantage. Um, that phrase has been somewhat abused in the 20th century through false teachings and um, I would say misdirected zealousness in trying to understand the Holy Spirit. But we will try to unpack that phrase this morning. So this new baptism was the operation of the Spirit by the direction of Christ. Remember, he would baptize with the Holy Spirit, the one that was coming after John. So Christ is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So, Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, when the Holy Ghost descended on the day of Pentecost, when the Lord Jesus Christ baptized with the Holy Spirit, as he had said he would do, what was happening was the formation of the church as the body of Christ. Now, before this, there were believers. The apostles were obviously believers before the day of Pentecost, we would agree. You must not regard them as unbelievers before then. But that was before the day of Pentecost, so then what was it that happened on the day of Pentecost? I would suggest, Lloyd-Jones says, 
that the believers were welded together as members of the one body of Christ. Before they were separate believers, even as the believers in the Old Testament were believers and were citizens of the kingdom. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, in the patriarchs and so on, but they were not members of the body of Christ. On the day of Pentecost, the primary event was that all these became one. Now, I opened in humor this morning with the unity that we have in this body. It's a very serious thing. Some churches don't have unity. So, whenever I was trying to calm you down from talking with one another, it's an evidence of unity. In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, he says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, I'm from Newburgh, you're from Evansville. Isn't that a higher class than the other? I'm just kidding. I'm totally kidding. Whether slaves are free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. I'm originally from Boonville, by the way, so. <laughs> Thank you. The arrival of the Holy Spirit, then, is recorded in Acts 2. This event was not the result of an intense worship experience or some conjuring up of passionate emotionalism, but was a fulfillment of God's promise. This coming of the Holy Spirit was a distinct event. John Stott writes of this event, In itself it is unrepeatable, as unrepeatable as the Savior's death, resurrection, and ascension which, pre which preceded it. That's saying something, because some people would ask in some charismatic or Pentecostal groups, uh, have you experienced a personal Pentecost? Well, that event is unrepeatable. Now, to set the scene of this special day, this event occurred 10 days after the ascension of Christ from the Mount of Olives. Christ had commanded his disciples, stay in Jerusalem to receive the gift of the Father, which was promised. The disciples that were in that house numbered 120. Some named among them Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, yes, even Thomas, the doubter, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, Simon the Zealot, Judas the son of James, women were there, Mary the mother of Jesus, and Jesus' brothers. We read at the end of chapter 1 that even Matthias, it was between him and another, and they cast lots, and he filled that 12th position left by Judas Iscariot, the traitor. So we read in chapter 2, starting, and this is our moment here. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, these 120 in the house, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak 
with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. The 12 apostles, all of the disciples, these 120, were the first to receive this baptism of the Holy Spirit. Signs and wonders accompanied this arrival, the noise of violent, rushing wind, tongues of fire on their heads visibly. We call that a theophany, like the burning bush, the manifestation of God's presence, and the speaking of other languages. This was not a strictly esoteric experience for some of them, limited to only those particular people, the 12 apostles, for instance, but it was given to all 120. Further than that, there was something else occurring outside the house. There was a great gathering of people. Maybe they had heard the rushing wind. It doesn't tell us that, but there was this noise, and if all 120 of them heard it, and if all of them were out and they were speaking with these tongues, it would seem to me that these people were gathering around because they had also experienced that evidence, that manifestation of God's presence. So all of these Jews from other nations that were gathered for the Jewish festival had heard and seen these things, and they were asking themselves, what does this mean? What is the mystery of all of this? And there was great confusion. They also said, which I think is funny, hearing their native languages, because they weren't just speaking some strange sound coming from their tongue, it was their own native languages of these 15 or so other nations that were spread about. And they said, are these our native languages coming from these Galileans? Galileans? kind of like those Boonvillians across the, across the county line there. Pelzer specifically, you're right, way out there. Jerome, St. Jerome from the 4th and 5th century, has an elegant passage describing Pentecost and describing it as a mirror image of what happened with Moses and the Israelites. He says, there is Sinai, here Zion, they're in Jerusalem. There, the trembling mountain, when Moses received the law. Here, the trembling house, with the noise of the mighty rushing wind. There, the flaming mountain. They saw the thunderings and lightnings and looked like the mountain was on fire. Here, the flaming tongues, that theophany above the heads of the people. There, the noisy thunderings. Here, the sounds of many tongues. There, the clangor of the ram's horn. And here, the notes of the gospel trumpet. So, there was great mystery afoot. What does it all mean, they said? Well, Peter doesn't miss an opportunity. He lifts up his voice to the multitude gathered, and without smoke machines, without dimmed lighting, without repetitive phrases, meant to lull the minds to submission, Peter preached. Let us never underestimate the power of sound preaching. Preaching the word of God as empowered by the spirit of God is the primary means 
of saving souls. For as we read in Scripture, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. When Peter proclaimed the gospel, the Bible says they were pierced to the heart, and they asked, what shall we do? What could they have done? Well, it's the same for us today. Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Turn from sin. Trust the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will then receive this assurance and the guarantee of our salvation, who is the Holy Spirit. So at this point, I'd like to make a strong clarification in this progression of this receiving of the Holy Spirit. The 120 that we started with, gathered in the house, awaiting the Spirit in Acts 1, were already believers. We know this because they were following the commands of Christ to wait in Jerusalem. They had already heard or were eyewitnesses of the glorious gospel of Christ, even in the flesh. The Bible tells us that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. So that was a two-step process, regeneration, and then Pentecost came, and they were baptized in and filled with the Holy Spirit. That was a two-step process for those believers. They, did, they had not yet received the Holy Spirit because he had not yet been given. Seems logical. John seven thirty nine, Christ says, But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. There was a step-by-step progression. Now that the Spirit had come, all of these received this Spirit, this baptism of the Spirit. So a quick question. Did every person in the crowd, that multitude, receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Well, it doesn't say all of the people. It said 3,000 souls were added to the church that day. For them, these 3,000, their acceptance of the gospel and the receiving of the Holy Spirit was a simultaneous event. 3,000 souls were saved for eternity on that day. John Stott writes, We live after the event of Pentecost with the 3,000. With us, therefore, as with them, the forgiveness of sins and the gift or baptism of the Spirit are received together. So let me make simple this complex idea of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit for us today, after Pentecost, is what we would call becoming born again. It's all the same. For them, we talked about regeneration in the Old Testament, and then the Spirit came. It was a two-step process. But after Pentecost, just as with the 3,000, when we hear the gospel and those respond to the gospel in saving faith, they receive at that moment, instantaneously, simultaneously, the gift of the Spirit or the baptism of the Spirit. Christ baptizes us into the body of Christ. 
Now, that took a few days, even weeks, for me to meditate on and to read certain things to come to that conclusion. Um, But if you read the Word, and if you follow in the path of church history, and you understand the understanding of these great fathers before us in the church, and the evidence of what occurred on that day at Pentecost with the 3,000, we can be assured that this is the case. And we'll get into that now. So we, like the 3,000, experience the baptism of the Spirit in the same way. Now in John MacArthur's very large volume, Biblical Doctrine, he lays out six things that the Spirit does at the moment of the baptism of the Spirit. Or we could call it the immersion into the body of Christ. That's a, I love that imagery. Number one, and this is in your notes, you can look at the scripture passages throughout the week. For the sake of time, we're going to just read what MacArthur writes here. This is what happens at the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Number one, Christ baptizes the believer with the Spirit into the body of Christ. Number two, the Father seals the believer with the Holy Spirit as a show of ownership and a guarantee of one's salvation. We're going to be studying that next week, by the way. (laughs) The Spirit indwells the believer, number three. Number four, the Spirit fills and controls the believer, urging us into sanctified living, which then, number five, produces spiritual fruit in the believer's life. And number six, the Spirit gifts the believer for service in the church. Now, this is an introductory list of truths we'll endeavor to unpack in the coming weeks, but it is a succinct analysis of the real practical implications of what we experience when baptized into the body of Christ. There are both groups of the Christian world that believe these things are done in subsequent steps, that there are some Christians who have experienced an initial baptism or salvation, but that the work is incomplete, and I would say too, sanctification is an ongoing process. We are not completely holy as we're going to be in heaven. We would all agree with that because we read over and over again about the struggle with sin and what to do if we sin, and so we know we're not perfectly sanctified, but that all of that power is there for sanctification. But these groups believe that this work is incomplete until there's a manifestation of tongues or some sign or wonder, as with the original day of Pentecost, that special, unrepeatable event. So why is this the case when we have seen with the 3,000 who we can identify with, who have received the forgiveness of God and the Spirit of God instantaneously? We find that the Jerusalem and Judean believers, this group of the 120 and the 3,000, were not the only groups identified as having been baptized by the Spirit of Christ or Christ's Spirit. Now, on the back of your handout, uh, that table is not my own work. I did type out all the words in there, but that is a table from the uh, Bible Doctrine book that MacArthur has. And uh, we're going to walk through briefly these other groups that were also 
recorded as being baptized with the Spirit. So we're going to skip to Acts chapter 8, and it's verses 14 through 24. It's the account of the Samaritans that believe the preaching of the apostle Philip. Now, Philip, I gained a great respect for in this study, because Philip went to the Samaritans. Now, if you know anything about the history of the Jews and the Samaritans, you know they didn't like each other. Worse than that, they hated each other. They didn't want to have anything to do with each other. They didn't go to each other's houses. That's why Christ's parable of the Good Samaritan was so powerful, and that the Samaritan helped this Jewish man who was beat up on the side of the road. But we see Philip going to Samaria. Why Samaria? Because Jesus said, you'll be my apostles, or these that I send in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and into the uttermost parts of the world. So Philip was accomplishing or doing the work of the Great Commission. Even in a hostile place, they probably didn't even want him there. But he went and he preached the gospel. And they accepted. So this group of Samaritans accepted the gospel, but the Spirit had not yet been given to them. There's a separation here. Okay? So this is after Pentecost. And this is... Uh, something that I was reading with different authors that were saying this is an atypical event. But there was a reason that God withheld the giving of the Spirit to this group of Samaritans. So why the separation of time? Why a split event? After I've been telling you over and over again that it's instantaneous. It says the reason for this subsequent gifting of the Holy Spirit was for the sake of of unity. One body, one spirit, and one faith. The Jews and the Samaritans, centuries of division. They hated each other. So if they would have accepted Philip's preaching, they could have started their own churches and things, but there would still be, well, those are the Jewish Christians, and these are the Samaritan Christians. A great divide still. There would be no unity. So would the birthplace of Christianity also become the birthplace for another century or millennia of schism? God would not have it. Christ would not have it, and the Spirit would not have it. So would the ancient Jewish-Samaritan schism survive in the church and become a disastrous division between Jewish Christians and Samaritan Christians? Is it not reasonable to suppose that it was precisely, and this is John Stott, in order to avoid the development of such a situation that God deliberately withheld the gift of his spirit from the Samaritan believers, or at least the outward evidence of the gift, until two of the leading apostles came down. That was Peter and John. They left Jerusalem. They went to Samaria. And it says that they were sent from Jerusalem for the benefit of the Jews So this is a benefit of the Jews, to recognize these Samaritans as true believers. So the Jews couldn't look down on them and say, well, just like they only accepted the Torah and none of our prophets, they probably didn't even accept all of what Philip preached. These Christians probably aren't full Christians anyway. But Peter and John went to the Samaritans to give um, authenticity to their reception of the Spirit. And they actually got a lot of pushback when they returned to Jerusalem. And the people were like, 
you went to Samaria? Did they really accept the gospel? And they were questioning Peter and John, and Peter and John told them, it's true, it occurred, they have received the Holy Spirit. And it says that uh, when they laid hands on, I believe that was, I don't have that in my notes, but I'm, it's in your table. So let me leave that out, and, and I'll let you look at that. It's at the bottom of your table, I believe. I got to get this right. Give me a second here. So yes, thank you. They laid hands on these Samaritan believers and they received the gift of the Holy Spirit. So this was also a benefit for the Samaritans in that they... Excuse me. I am human. You already knew that. And uh, I think it's funny, Peter, whenever he had gone um, in our next set here, we're going to move on to the house of Cornelius. Cornelius was a very faithful man. This is our next group in Caesarea. Um, Cornelius was of Caesarea. He was a high-ranking military man, and he was a God-fearing man. And this God-fearing man was always giving alms and uh, making all of these prayers to God and supplications before God. And he was a Gentile, Cornelius was. And he was accepting of the Jew um, belief, the Jewish belief of Jehovah, uh, with the exception of circumcision. So he wasn't a full proselyte, uh, but he was a God-fearer. And he had sent for Peter, and Peter had come to him after... Again, not really wanting to because he was a Gentile after all. He was unclean, but God sent a vision three different times to Peter, and he said, uh, look at all of these things, take up and eat these things that he was showing them. And Peter said, it's, it's unclean, I'm not going to eat that. And God said, the things that I make clean are clean. And so Peter went to Cornelius, and Cornelius, even though he was a worshiper of Jehovah, he had not heard of Christ. That's the gospel message. That's how you are baptized into the body of Christ, is accepting the gospel message. So Peter preaches for 10 verses. And while Peter was still speaking in Cornelius' house, they began to speak in tongues and to glorify God. This was a sign to the Jews present that had come with Peter and those who were not present when he returned to his people in Jerusalem once again. So we see a group of Gentile proselytes had a change of heart and were baptized into the body of Christ after hearing the good news. So there's something I would like to say about Cornelius and godly leadership in the house of Cornelius because it says all of his house believed. So that is a, a great testament to the grace and the mercy of God and the importance, I would say, of godly leadership within the home. So finally, we're going to examine disciples in Ephesus. Disciples is a loose word. It didn't say disciples of Christ or disciples of the true gospel message, but it just said disciples. And we know that these disciples had been trained in something. Discipline means training. So these men were trained in something, but they had not been trained 
in the gospel. They had been trained by receiving John's baptism of repentance. So they were seekers. They were seeking after the things of God, but they had not yet heard of Christ. As a matter of fact, when uh, Paul, this is his third missionary journey, and this is uh, in AD 52. This is 22 years after Pentecost when this event happened. Paul asked them a question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They said... No, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Okay? So Paul is taking this into into his mind. Number two, he asks, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. Not Christ's. Not into the body of Christ. It was not the Holy Spirit's baptism that they had experienced. Instead, their belief was largely incomplete. It availeth nothing if you don't believe in the resurrection of Christ. So when they heard the good news of Jesus Christ, they were then baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Spirit came on them as Paul laid his hands on them, again signifying that they were included or immersed into the body of Christ. So, in conclusion today, is your faith solely resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ, or are you believing another gospel? Something else to consider. This is a lesson to those of us who desire to spread the message of the gospel. Maybe you have a friend or family member that claims to be a Christian, just as these disciples at Ephesus would have claimed to be true disciples. But, are we asking the questions that Paul asked to get to the heart of the matter, which is to the heart of the sinner, which then can lead to the heart of the gospel? Now, I love to kick back and enjoy friendships, with leisurely activities and entertainment, just like the rest of everyone here. I think you all like to have fun, right? You like to spend time with friends and family. Of course we do. But don't let our friendships with those who do not know Jesus become so leisurely that we care not about the eternal destination of their souls. We should be praying for them sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with them. That is our commission, just like Philip and Peter and John and all the other sent ones, the apostles. Also, if you truly believe in an eternal heaven and hell, as I do, would you not be earnestly pleading with your friends and your family? Well, I hope this lesson has given a fuller sense of the importance of Pentecost and a clearer understanding of these events that followed in the work of the Holy Spirit, in the beginning of the church as we know it. We're a product of that. It's amazing. It's an amazing thought and an amazing reality that we get to share in the same body of Christ that was formed on that day in AD 30. So next week... 
Uh, we are going to shift into the individual life, our practical living, with the work of the Holy Spirit within us. And uh, I want to just thank everyone for bearing with me during these studies. I know it's a lot of material, but I hope that you're able to meditate even on your notes throughout the week uh, to gain a fuller understanding. So let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you give to us to draw us near to you. We thank you for your word and for the clarity that you give in your word. And we just, we are incomplete in our learning and we are constantly learning and help us to never think that we've learned enough, but help us to trust in those things that we have learned. And I pray, O oh Lord, that these things would be used in worship, and Lord, that you would be honored through our understanding, and that the Holy Spirit would be the blessed um, indweller and not grieved in our daily lives. Lord, we just thank you for all that you give to us in Christ, and that we have a hope, even through death, we have a hope, because you are life everlasting and help us to rejoice in that hope daily. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.